advice to, to anyone is to think what you want to do in your life. The same with work. Don't do what others tell you. Always think what you, what you want to do. Then if you feel good with that, go all the way and do it really nicely. And this would be my advice. Hi guys, my name is Marcel and I'm here to tell you that Adriesa you speak about his life and how he came into the blockchain space. Thanks a lot that you're my guest today and let's start right away. What's your catchphrase? Yeah, hi Marcel, thank you for having me. And my catchphrase would be actually, yes, I'm really a lawyer. So do you want to give us a short explanation why? Yes, so I mean, as you can see, I'm now sitting here in a hoodie. And uh, nowadays it's easier because I, I'm active in, in blockchain and crypto where you see people walking around in hoodies. Uh, but this is how I, 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 I dress, you know, and I don't need to dress to impress the people. I, uh, I dress how I feel comfortable. Uh, this is one thing. The second thing is my appearance in general. I mean, I can also wear a suit, but still people would wonder if I'm really like a, a lawyer or maybe I'm a mechanic or something like this because uh, how I look, but also how I, how I behave and how I act. It's not like the typical lawyer, I would say, but what most of the people tell me. Yeah, And that's why uh, if, if I have a discussion and talking to people and I do not introduce myself as a lawyer, but at some point they ask me, okay, what do you do for life? So I'm a lawyer. So really? said, so, yes, I'm really a lawyer. <laughs> and, uh, and then I, I, I tell her, yes, but I'm a blockchain lawyer. Oh, okay, so <laughs> I understand. And, um, so uh, yeah, that, that's actually my catchphrase. Yeah, really interesting. And of course, we'll find out more in this podcast. Let's start with your childhood. Where have you been raised? Yeah, so I'm originally from, from Iran. So that's my background. So I was born in Iran and in Tehran. And uh, we came over to Germany. It was uh, Iran, Iraq, uh, the Gulf War. So we, we, we fled Iran and we came here as refugees, actually, to Germany. Uh, my parents, it wasn't uh, 85, I was three years old. Uh, so I, I was raised in Germany actually, yeah, and uh, not not that far away from here. And yeah, raised in Germany and uh, went here to school. Went to UK to, to England also to school. Uh, came back again, and uh, ever since I'm uh, yeah in Germany. <laughs> yeah. What well, what was your first um, impression from Germany? Did you like it from the beginning? Difficult to say because I was three years old. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I I can remember at that time. It's similar now with the Ukrainian uh, refugees. Mm -hmm. Uh, we were also at that time refugees, but we were coming from Iran, and uh, we we lived in a refugee camp actually. And uh, and then uh, with my mother, we, we we got out of the refugee camp. We then lived in a hotel uh, for some time <laughs> until we then got uh, our own place. Uh, but as I think back to my childhood, like when I went to to elementary school, uh, uh, very friendly, very friendly people. And uh, when I like think back, I, I would say actually at that time I believe the people in Germany were more uh, more friendly to, to refugees, more friendly to foreigners. Uh, I felt very welcome. Uh, and uh, yeah, and thinking back, I would say I had a, I had a nice time and uh, I didn't feel like a foreigner. I felt when I went to school, like to elementary school, uh, yeah, belonging to society. What was a typical day in your childhood? How would you describe it? Uh, yeah, so I mean, um, 
from my background, I was living with only my mother and my sister, so we were like the three of us. Um, and um, I would say I was always into gaming. So mm -hmm. gaming was something I very much enjoyed. So uh, Commodore 64, C, uh, 64 was something I got as a, as a present as a small kid. I was I think five or six years mm -hmm. old. And so I, I was only growing up with, with one parent and one mother. She was working. And uh, at the same time, I had to educate myself, do something with myself. So I was gaming a lot. Uh, then Nintendo came out and all that stuff, which now people would say, okay, we have so much gaming stuff. But at that time, you had a Commodore 64 and you had a Nintendo or uh, 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 yeah, some other advice. Atari was also in at that time. So I was always into gaming. I was always into doing something, let's say, with IT, we would say, nowadays. And, uh, yeah, and uh, and that, that was actually my, my childhood. And I was always, like, interested to, to do something in the in the IT environment, yeah. Interesting. And did you like school? Um, not really. <laughs> not really. I didn't really like school that much. I mean, um, my, uh, my, my sibling, my sister, she's one year older than me. So she, she started before me going to school, and she had to... Uh, repeat the first class because the teacher said her German skills are not that good. Uh, for me, it was a little bit different because I was very good in mathematics and I was uh, I could very easily understand stuff and I was uh, like uh, educating myself and learning how to read the, the watch and stuff like that, which my sister couldn't do uh, before me. Uh, so uh, I would say I had a benefit of understanding things very quick. Uh, but at the same time, I was a lazy guy, so I did not like to do homework. So when I had to do warm homework, my mother was working, so I was alone at home. So I had to decide what to do, watch TV, <laughs> play Commodore and Nintendo, or do the homeworks. I knew I had to do the homework, but I was rather doing it quickly. So then to have enough time to play games or to watch TV. And this, I think this was something I would say that the, like the red line in my life, I was always trying to do everything as quick as possible like effective and then to have time for uh, leisure stuff yeah um you mentioned gaming would you say games help with developing specific skills i would say yes i mean right now i have two kids i have two boys and my wife she's always uh, complaining because she took education very serious she was reading lots of books i didn't <laughs> and now we have two boys and uh, they they like gaming and i actually told my wife this week uh, let the boy play some games because it helps the boy to learn reading yeah? and also to learn uh, reading with, with uh, English and in English because I was playing games at that time which did not exist in Germany so I was buying it from Japan and then I started playing that games and it was uh, with uh, English subtitle and <laughs> Japanese people <laughs> speaking so I had to learn uh, reading English when I was young by, by games mm -hmm. and uh, I honestly think uh, games at that time role games that really help developing and help to give you some skills. Uh, and I would say it helped definitely me. I can't really say uh, play games instead of reading a book. I think reading books is very good. Uh, but for me, uh, I never really read a book totally, like completely, <laughs> because I wanted to read it. I read some chapters, but there are people who read lots of books. Uh, I listen to audiobooks and I play games. Mm -hmm. Let's come back to school. You, you mentioned mathematics. Was that your favorite subject or was there something else? Yeah, actually it was mathematics in the beginning because I was very good in it and uh, I was better than the other. So it was for me nice to do it. Um, I also enjoyed sports at some time. When I was a small kid, I was a little bit chubby and people were teasing me because I was not that good in sports. 
and then uh, I had a, uh, I had a, uh, from the fourth grade, there was a teacher who told me at that time, you're really good in sports, you're good in team sports. And I was thinking sports is always about uh, being like an athlete and being good in running and being good independently. But he told me, you don't have to be an athlete to be good in sports. You're good as a team player. And this really pushed me to become good in sports. And from the fourth grade, I was then doing lots of uh, sport classes and joining sports societies. And this actually brought me to taking as a main subject when I was doing my yeah, A-levels, Abitur in Germany, sports as one of the main subjects next to mathematics. Mm. So sports then really uh, pushed me and it was actually one of my goals also for studying. But then I injured myself and didn't go really for sports anymore. Mm. You mentioned the sport teacher. What was the influence of, of teachers in school for you? Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. I mean, uh, for me, uh, maybe because I only had one parent, uh, the, the older person is more like a person from whom I either want to learn something and take it as a role model or being afraid and not doing stuff. So it was the same in school. So as I told you, I had two teachers in sport. One was a lady, one was a gentleman. The lady was always pushing on me and really on pushing me because I was chubby, which was actually quite me. <laughs> it was a small kid. So I was always thinking that I'm a loser in sport and uh, it was really stopping me from doing stuff. And I also had a teacher uh, who just saw me and thought that I need to learn German because the teacher saw that I'm like an immigrant and uh, straight assumed that I can't speak German and was trying to put me in some uh, special school to learn German. But then I went to this special school and the, the lady teacher said, your German is very good. So why are you sitting here? So what are you doing here? And this person and also the other person uh, in, in sports, they gave me like some, some, some support. They told me, okay, you're, you're good at this. Don't listen to the others who tell you you're not good in this. Uh, and in mathematics, I didn't have this problem, but some other classes I then did like music and art, uh, which people wouldn't really say it's uh, like for, for, for guys, maybe for girls, but I was good in, uh, in music and also in art and uh, teachers really told me you're good at that. And this helped me to, to develop a lot. And also throughout my career and also education, uh, I, I realized when someone is telling me something where I'm good at, and I was then straight going for this subject and pushing on that. But at the same time, I'm also very critical to myself. If someone tells me I'm not good, uh, I try to, to become better in that. And, uh, but I also realize when someone is just mean, <laughs> and there are some teachers who are mean. Uh, and yeah, and uh, this, this, for, this is for me, like the teacher is either some person where you have to watch out because they're mean to you or someone from whom you can learn and improve uh, on your yeah, negative path or improve also in your good path to become even better. Mm -hmm. How are secondary school and A-levels for you? Have there something changed or? Yeah, so actually, I mean, um, when I was in elementary school, um, um, I, what I'm right now saying, I think a lot of immigrants, they can feel with me. Uh, because when I was in elementary school, the, the, the teachers, they give you some suggestion where to go and what, to, what path to take in your career. So they told my sister and they told me to go to some school where a lot of immigrants are. And in that school, it's like a, uh, we call it a school. It's not like an, uh, like not like a school where you go to to do, to the to university. It's not a gymnasium, what we say in German. It's a Gesamtschule. So it's a school where you can then maybe decide you go and study, but maybe you go and do uh, something like uh, a lower education, Ausbildung without studying, and then working. And most of the people who went to this Gesamtschule, to this main school, uh, they they they. They ended up not studying. So, 
And so the, the, the teachers that were telling me and my parents, uh, yeah, we'd recommend to uh, Alireza and as we did with the sister to go to that school because there are more people of your type. This was like the suggestion, you feel better with them. And my mother, she was not sure. She said, okay, these are the teachers, so we should listen to them. So she, she did that with my sister. So she went to that kind of school, even though her grades are very good. She had, she had like... Uh, out of 80 uh, 80% of her marks she had the top the top uh, uh, marks she had only a's some b's i had lots of b's some c's one or two a's <laughs> and uh, my mother then talked to some other parents and they said no 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 don't listen to them send him to to the high school to gymnasium yeah because then he can go to university because i'm from the iranian background and the iranians they always want their kids to study medicine or become a lawyer and so this is always the push from top uh, and then we went back to the uh, elementary school and tell them, no, this boy is not going to that school. He wants to go to the, to the A-level school. And then they even came back saying, oh, you missed the deadline. We're sorry to tell it to you. He has to go to that school. I said, no, no, you don't have to do, go to that school. It was your suggestion. So in the end, I didn't go to the, to the lower school, to the Gesamtschule, and I didn't go to gymnasium. I went to the middle one, so to uh, what we call Realschule in Germany, uh, where you can still have the chance to yeah, to go higher, to go to the gymnasium and then do study. Uh, and uh, there was a good decision because my sister, unfortunately, went to this Gesamtschule and her grades became very bad because the environment, well, all were migrants and mm -hmm. none of them really had the chance to look left and right and try to be better. They were all on the same level and she ended up not studying. She did this Ausbildung and uh, I went to, 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 yeah, to the Realschule and I pushed always to be in the top four or top three and then, yeah, to the gymnasium, I changed, and then to university. So that's that's how it was for me. Yeah, super interesting. And you already mentioned the influence of um, your mother on what you later maybe study. So how was that influence? Yeah. Was, that, was that pressure or? Yes, I mean, it was pressure. It was pressure because Iranians, as you see around in the industry, Iranians always want to be independent. So they either want to be a, a doctor, like they do medicine, or they want to be lawyers or, or being an architecture or something like this. Because in the Iranian language, um, the name of uh, someone who's working for a company is almost the same word as being a slave. So, and from the mindset of the Iranians, you're either independent, so you're the boss, you're, so you, you do something, uh, you're maybe an entrepreneur, or you work for someone else and you would become the, the slave of someone rather than being independent and working. So you're either an entrepreneur, you're a doctor or you're a lawyer. And so my mother was always telling me, yeah, choose one of them. Uh, medicine is very nice because my mother was in Iran a midwife, so she was working in a hospital. She said, it would be a nice profession for you, but I never was interested in medicine. Uh, I was rather interested in doing things right or wrong, so more like a philosophical profession. And I said, okay, then maybe the lawyer thing is a better thing for me. Even though I never really wanted to become a lawyer, my mom put the pressure on me. And in the end, I became a lawyer, but I really didn't plan till the last year of school to become a lawyer. So it actually uh, was connected to my injury I had because when I was doing sports as a main subject, I had a very bad injury with my left leg and uh, I was working with sticks for one year and I couldn't do uh, any more any sport because I wanted to study sport and mathematics. Mm -hmm. And I, did, I thought it's not working and then uh, in the end I said, okay, 
listen back to your mother what she told you. <laughs> do do uh, do law and uh, and this in, in this respect, my mother really uh, I think it was one of the best decisions I did in the end. And I listened to my mom, yeah, even though many people would say don't listen to your parents, just do something. But I listened to her and I uh, did the law studies. I think it was one of my best choices. Where where have you studied? Yeah, so it was also another good choice of mine. Uh, because I'm from this region, so now right now we're in Frankfurt, so I'm from this region and I was going to the school and also to the A-levels close to here and everyone who would study uh, and who wants to do maybe partying and going out would say let's go to Frankfurt and study there. But I chose not to go to Frankfurt. At that time the, the, yeah, the faculty of law was not as nice as it's now because this is a new law faculty in Frankfurt. At that time it was not a nice faculty and the buildings that were around the city and I knew exactly if I go to Frankfurt I will end up partying. <laughs> I knew exactly I will party so I, uh, I gave my applications to Frankfurt and I gave it also to Gießen, to the University of Gießen and at that time I didn't know Gießen, I was thinking what is Gießen? Probably a boring city and if it's a boring city you will study <laughs> for once in your life and you will do it seriously and, uh, and then I went to Gießen, yeah, uh, and uh, I didn't uh, study all the time. I was going actually partying in the end in Gießen, not in Frankfurt. But yeah, I, I studied in Gießen and I also studied in Nottingham because Nottingham is a partying university of Gießen and uh, I had the opportunity to, to study for one year abroad and I did it with Nottingham in England. Uh, so these were the two universities for me, uh, Gießen and Nottingham. What was your experience with studying law? Of course, everybody expect it's really difficult there's a lot of pressure so what is your personal experience yeah so it, my personal experience was first i mean gießen is in the, in the middle of germany so anyone who cannot get into law let's say in cologne or in bonn or in munich uh, they they would apply to some central register and the central register would give them some um, yeah, some, some alternative. And so Gießen was the alternative university for most of those who didn't make it to Cologne or to Bonn uh, or to Dusseldorf and had to come to, to Gießen. So you saw many students coming from that area. Uh, and uh, of course, those who come from that area, they are dressed differently because they are from a different society. We say, uh, yeah, they're from the Shikiria from a, a society where people are dressed very nicely and uh, uh, rather the upper class and, uh, and, and Frankfurt or yeah, Hessen in general is different from that area. Uh, so the first impression was, whoa, they're all dressed uh, very nicely and they're from the upper class. Maybe you do not fit in because you're, you're not dressed like them. You do not walk around with your uh, law books in some nice leather bag and you do not wear the 500 euro a Burberry jacket. Uh, you just come uh, with a backpack, and <laughs> there's one, uh, yeah, one pamphlet inside it. Where you bought it maybe used on on eBay, uh, and but you still study with them. Uh, and but uh, so the first impression was maybe it's the wrong place, especially because in law, uh, if you look at the first semester and the first year, uh, I would say 60, 70, maybe even 75 percent of students fail. So they they straight get like wiped out and they do something different. So they go from, uh, from law then to economics. So they study then uh, BWL or something else. Um, and there was a high risk for me, uh, not fitting in the society, uh, not fitting from the looks, yeah, not fitting from the background to fail straight in the first year. And there was pressure, of course, uh, also saying that hmm, maybe you're not the smartest because 
my 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 school path, as you as you heard, was not like straight uh, being in a in a in an A level school. I, I really worked my level up, and I didn't really know. And I'm like from the background, from the society, from my education, good enough. Uh, but yeah, so after the first year, I fit in very smoothly and. Uh, found out that there is some other group of people, not those who run around with beverage jackets, but some other people, uh, and it worked out uh, very fast. And Gießen, I have to say, for those who are not sure where to study, is a very nice university, a very nice department, uh, with lots of nice infrastructure for students, uh, and also with a nice nightlife. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned Nottingham as well. So what was your experience with uh, Nottingham, for example? Was it really different to, to Gien? Yeah, so uh, Nottingham is actually very different and very similar to, <laughs> to Gießen, yeah? I mean, with, with Nottingham, uh, it was actually very similar with my entire yeah, education path. I, I was not sure if I fit in, if I can get there. Already the application, not everyone can go there. You had to apply. And the, the department where you had to apply was actually the department where I was working as a student. So I was working as a student in the Department for International Law, International Public Law, uh, uh, European Law, Humanitarian Law. And so I was um, applying there and I was considering that I will get rejected. But I still applied because I was thinking, let's try it. I mean, there were lots of questions for me. Uh, who's paying it for you? How do you... How do you study there. At that time, my English was very bad. I, my English was very poor because I had a bad English teacher in, 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 a, in a mid school. Uh, and I was having lots of question marks, but I still applied with the intention to get rejected. But uh, they, they took me and I also found out afterwards that uh, I was like one of the best candidates whom they took because everyone else who applied didn't really fit in there because you needed to do some stuff, your application needed to look in some way nice and you need to put a motivation letter, why you think you should go there. And you could choose from different universities. They had the University of Bath, the University of somewhere else in North, uh, uh, in North England. But I chose Nottingham because I knew that Nottingham is very similar to Gießen because it's a student city. It is not famous like London for being a financial district or for, for Bath, which is in the south of England, which is very close uh, to the beach, yeah? or to the north, where you can go maybe sightseeing to Scotland and Wales. It is really an industrial city in the middle of UK. Um, and of course, uh, uh, Robin Hood is <laughs> famous, Sherwood Forest is famous. And I knew from other students who went before me there that Nottingham is a very nice student city. It's a very inter uh, international city because Nottingham has partnerships with um, with Malaysia and with um, uh, Singapore and um, so they have a program where it says that uh, UK students have to go to Malaysia and to uh, to Singapore uh, for one year and other way around so the, 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 the different student halls and the different departments in Nottingham it was across the city was very international um, and yeah it, it was very good for me because uh, I straight decided to squeeze in the English-speaking society, I chose myself not to be with the, among the German students. I chose myself to be with those who only speak English, to learn English. And uh, it was also a very, very good choice of mine to, to apply and to go there, to be there for one year, because it somehow opened my perspective uh, towards life and towards career and education. Nowadays you work uh, at Anerton. What was your path after your study to Anerton? So was it your first law, law company or what came between them? 
Yeah, so um, very good point. I mean, after I came back from Nottingham, I knew that I want to do something to, yeah, to use my English skills to work in an international environment. So I knew exactly I will not become a judge and I will not become a state prosecutor because these jobs we will do in Germany and the language by definition at the court is German. So we'll most likely end up only working in German. So I knew always myself that I want to do something in English or in international language. I was even for a short time living in London because I had a girlfriend at that time in Nottingham who went to London. So I was trying to follow her to stay there. So I was always wanted to have the work which is yeah, in an international environment. So I finished my studies and then uh, uh, when I was still working in this department for European law and international law, and I straight realized I, I was even able to go to uh, United Nations to New York um, to, to continue there my path. But after being in Nottingham, where I paid everything again myself from my own pocket, I was always working besides studying. I was always working somewhere and, and that's how I financed my studies. I realized, yeah, I cannot do that again because New York is very expensive and the United Nations would not pay you anything. So I was thinking, okay, I'm in Gießen, I'm very close to Frankfurt and Frankfurt is a very nice district for banks and capital markets. So I knew I want to do something with banks and capital markets, even though it was not fitting to my original idea to do something with humanitarian law, international law. I was very good in criminal law, um, but I said, okay, let's give it a try and, and do an internship or work at a, a law firm. So I did that, I went to Norton Rose and I had a very nice uh, stay there during my uh, secondary education after university, you do a secondary education, it's called Referendariat, uh, and there you choose where to go. So I chose to do it with Norton Rose, like an international law firm. And I chose Norton Rose because they were doing Islamic banking and Islamic finance. So I, I was always, from my childhood on, interested to do something new, something innovative, something which is different, from the other things. I was getting bored very quickly with the yeah, classical traditional stuff. So I was always wanting to do something new. So I knew that Norton Rose is good in Islamic banking, Islamic finance. So I went to Norton Rose, worked there for nine months in Frankfurt. I did quite well. So I had the opportunity to continue there. So, and then they offered me to uh, go somewhere abroad. So they offered me to go to Australia. At that time, the HR head, uh, Magdalena, she was very nice to me. She, uh, wanted me to go to uh, Australia to be one of the, one of the first German uh, colleagues over there to see how it is. Um, this was actually maybe wrong choice, maybe good choice. I said, no, I don't want to go to Australia. I want to go to the one of the main districts where banking and capital market is important. And I chose London. I said, I want to go to London. I want to work in London for four months. And I want to continue with Islamic banking. And at that time in London, they had one of the top uh, lawyers in Islamic banking, uh, a lady, Famida B, and I wanted to work with her. So I went for four months to London. I came back. I unfortunately did not really work that much in London on Islamic banking. Um, so I also did not stay with Norton Rose. I went to another big uh, law firm, Clifford Charms. Uh, I was trying to fit in there and I was trying to do litigation, which I didn't like. Um, and uh, I didn't stay long with Clifford Charles. Um, I then decided to do my PhD. I started doing my PhD on Islamic banking. Uh, and at Norton Rose, I helped the first Islamic bank to get the banking license. Uh, Kuwait Turk, they're still here. The first and the last one who got a banking license as an Islamic bank. Uh, and, uh, but I, uh, when I was doing my PhD for one and a half years, I realized that uh, Islamic banking is not really something which is really running in Germany. And there was also the time when people became very, uh, yeah, I would say nervous when you talk about Islamic. Uh, Islamic was straight something, hmm, is it a terrorist? <laughs> no, we're not doing it. 
but I wanted to do something with innovation. So um, uh, I, I, I left um, Jones Day, where I worked after Clifford Jones. Jones Day is also a top law firm, uh, a very nice uh, US law firm with a very good salary. And I chose myself to get uh, a lower salary, a much lower salary, minus 50%, uh, but to do something which I really want to do. And I wanted to do uh, regulatory. Uh, because I realized when I did this uh, yeah, licensing project with Northern Rose and Couverture that I like this. Mm, I talked to some big four companies, uh, EY, Deloitte, uh, PwC, and I chose in the end to go to PwC, PwC Legal, because uh, the team which I met there, uh, they were yeah, similar to me. They also were like interested in, in, in uh, regulatory. But at the same time, they did something with Islamic banking. So I saw that they are up for new things. So they are up for innovation. Uh, and this very much helped me also with, my, with what I'm doing now. Because at PwC, I started to look into blockchain and DLT. Uh, so to, but just to answer to you how it got to energy. So I was with PwC for almost five years, quite some time. I did very nice projects, very interesting projects. Um, I was asked by Simmons and Simmons to join Simmons and Simmons to build up their uh, blockchain practice, which I did quite successfully. And then I got the offer from uh, my colleague Anna Itzu Wagner, who was coming at that time from Taylor Wessing, to build up with her the Frankfurt office of Anathen. So Anathen is a spin off of an existing German law firm, uh, but the spin off was only in uh, Berlin, Munich, and in Luxembourg. But in Frankfurt, um, Anna asked me, Alreza, are you interested to, to follow me and to build up with me the, the law firm in Frankfurt, the office? Uh, and I said straight yes. Uh, and that's how I got 2020 uh, into Anathen, building up the, the, yeah, the Anathen office in Frankfurt and also building up, um, I wouldn't say from scratch, but at that time there was not that much going on with crypto and blockchain. Uh, I built up the crypto and blockchain department and I would say I'm now like the head of that. Of course, you already mentioned blockchain, crypto. When was the first time you heard about that? Yeah, it was, um, it was very early and it was not actually related to the work. It was related to my uh, second interest after gaming, which is watching movies. <laughs> I was watching at that time The Good Wife, and there was one episode of The Good Wife, you can straight find, still find it on YouTube, um, where um, the lady lawyer in The Good Wife was uh, defending uh, in that episode some guy who was supposed to be Satoshi Nakamoto. So I didn't say Bitcoin in that episode, but of course it was all about Bitcoin. Uh, in the end, they said it, said that something about Bitcoin, but from the beginning, it was not really clear what kind of cryptocurrency it is. And I was watching that, and I, of course, she's a lawyer, so she's helping some guy against uh, the, the evil in that episode, which was the SEC or OFAC, which was trying to get that gentleman into prison. And I was thinking at that time, wow, that's amazing. It's a currency. It's like really a currency. And, it, and I said, how can that work? I mean, how can that work? A currency which is independent from the government? And it's, isn't it like against the, the, the currency of the state, of the state? So it cannot work. It's impossible. So this was in 2010, 2011, I think. And then in 2014, um, uh, my mentor at that time, Sasha Demgensky from PwC, he was doing a project with me. And I was very ambitious. I was coming from Jones Day, from Jones Day a big law firm, and he had to like slow me down. Say, okay, it's not, not all about uh, billable hours. Um, we do something which we like. So we do a project with the European Commission uh, and at that time the project was called Banking Without Banks and this then became FinTech. So Banking Without Banks, this term became FinTech 
And my mentor, Zasha, he was asking Alreza, you have all the time you need. Please go make a research, find an instrument or product which is banking without a bank. And I came back to him after a couple of days with a nice research. I said, I found something. I'm not sure what it is, if it's an, a payment instrument or if it's an, an investment asset, but it's called Bitcoin and it's going through the roof in the US. In Germany, it's coming. I'm telling you, it's coming. So it's, this is something where we can do business. And he saw the passion in my eyes and said, okay, Ariza, very good. But understand, we at PwC, we also have to make some profit. How can we do profit with Bitcoin? I said, okay, we are regulatory. Okay, so probably we need some clients. So he sent me going back to, to continue my research. I did my research for two more days. And I came back and said, okay, I did so much research. I only found two companies. One is a bar in Berlin. They accept Bitcoin as a, as a means of payment. There are a couple of weirdos who meet in Berlin, who do some meetings and some, some conferences, but they're not our clients. And then I found one more in Frankfurt. They accept Bitcoin. Uh, it's, it's a souvenir shop, shop. So they accept Bitcoin also as a means of payment. I said, hmm. And I found something from BaFin, so that's a regulator, and BaFin said that you need a license if you do something with Bitcoin, so maybe we can do something with that. And he said, yeah, there is a, but this bar and this uh, souvenir shop, we cannot advise them, they do, cannot afford us. Uh, it's a good idea, continue looking into this, which I did. So he gave me the, the, the time and the, the, the capacity to look into Bitcoin, but not like earning money with it at PwC, but to educate myself. And this is where I then reached out inside uh, PwC to the non-lawyer, to the advisors and to the others who are all into doing something new. And we did the blockchain game. Uh, the blockchain game was something uh, big companies like Bosch or Daimler or others learned what blockchain is with the role game on uh, showing them the Bitcoin blockchain. And I was a blockchain game trainer at that time, but did this for some time. And then in 2017, uh, all this ICO started, and this is where all really everything went up, exactly like the Bitcoin went up. Uh, my work into crypto and, and, and crypto regulation really increased a lot. You mentioned regulation. Um, it's nowadays an even bigger topic. What's your opinion about the current crypto regulation in Germany and Europe? Yeah, so I'm looking into that as I told you since 2014. And I have really closely witnessed the entire um, change of regulation when it comes to crypto and blockchain. Not just from Germany, but also from the US, from outside Germany, like Europe, Hong Kong, Singapore, because when I was at PwC still, I was in a PwC global group uh, where we really looked at the regulation from a global level. And I was at that time in the end also so-called PwC Europe for the European companies, the ICO lead. So I, would, I was deciding what projects we take from a regulatory perspective and what, what we should do. So, and at that time we also did like a regulatory heat map. It still exists with PwC Switzerland, where you can see how the regulation is in a global, uh, yeah, global perspective. And so the regulation really increased. And in the beginning, we had the FATF, the Financial Action Task Force. It's not a regulator. They give only recommendations on what to do from an AML perspective on the, and also from the combating the finance of terrorism. And we had the German regulator or the domestic regulators coming up with the MLD5, with domestic regulation, stuff like that. And you can see that we were coming from a regulation more from a, uh, preventing anti-money laundering and financing of terrorism and maybe protecting the consumers to something which also helps the participants, like the ones who innovate something, the startups, to do their business in a regulated manner. It's not all about stopping people from doing business. Regulation now became something telling the companies how to do their business in a compliant manner. This at least 
in Germany and Europe. The US is very right now disturbing me because regulation and law should be something which is written by the books and which someone can look at and understand exactly how it is. But what is happening right now in US, I'm not a US lawyer, but I'm a lawyer and I can tell you it doesn't smell correct. It doesn't smell right because it can't be that one says that crypto is a security, the other said it's an asset um, and, and you do not really have transparency and clarity from the lawmaker and from the one who is applying the law. So the one who is applying the law is the supervisory body, but the supervisory body should not be the lawmaker. This is what we call um, separation of powers. This is like a fundamental rule of law. You have the, the one who is making the law and you have the one who is applying the law. But the one who's applying the law should never be the same one who is making the law. And this is something what I witness right now in the US at least. We also had it a little bit in Germany. We had this most famous case of uh, the gentleman who was brought through the German regulator Bafin to the, the, the criminal court uh, for running a cryptocurrency exchange for Bitcoin. And the criminal court said at that time something very interesting. The criminal court said, I'm, we are not sure, the judge said it, we're not sure how Bafin can qualify Bitcoin as a financial instrument because the term you're using for financial instrument, it is so broad. So anything what the regulator defines as a financial instrument in this class could be financial instrument under the regulator's view, but by that definition, uh, this is not working from a criminal perspective. Criminal, criminal law says the law has to be written very transparent for the users and also for the, for the, for the, for the public, for the, for the population to understand it directly without asking the regulator what it is. You should understand it yourself. And this is actually when the crypto assets definition came in the German Banking Act. And now we also have the crypto assets definition in the Mika, which is now coming. So for the European economic area. So the regulation is becoming more and more transparent for the users, for everyone. But at the same time, also providing two more things. Protection for the consumers, which is very important when we look at pump and dump activities and all this fraud we have, which is like, we have to say it, you have to admit it as someone who likes crypto, there's a lot of fraud happening when it comes to crypto. And the third thing is market market integrity, so insider dealing and stuff like that. So and the regulation is also taking care of that. And what I personally hope is that this regulation is going to become harmonized, not just in Europe and the European economic area, but around the globe. It can't be that we say in China, India, crypto is not allowed. And now also in the US, no one really understands what is allowed, what is not allowed. It has to be harmonized mm. because crypto and blockchain is something without borders, it's borderless. And therefore we need a common understanding from a borderless perspective, from a global perspective, how to regulate crypto or the blockchain or DLT, when you need regulation and when you do not need regulation. And this is very, I think, essential from, for all participants. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, now we spoke about, uh, let's say, the regulation side. Let's speak for a moment about the client side. So nowadays, are there different questions from your client than three years ago? Yes, it is. It is definitely the case. I mean, when I was doing ICOs in 2017 with PwC, the question was always which jurisdiction should we choose where we can do our business the fastest way and without being regulated, we call it regulatory arbitrage. So at that time, even though I didn't like it myself, I told them, okay, go to Switzerland or go to Gibraltar or go to somewhere else where crypto regulation is, is less strict. Uh, but now when we have regulation, which is some way transparent so you know exactly what you have to do to comply with 
I mean, the best example is Coinbase, which I advised at that time. Um, when they wanted to go out of Europe, when the Brexit was happening, they were in London. I told them, stay, stay in Europe, come to Germany, because we have a law which is very transparent. It tells exactly what you have to do, how you need to comply with it, and then you do the business. And this is also the, the tone and the appetite the clients have right now. They do not come to you and say, what do I need to do not to be regulated? They come to you and ask, what do I need to do to be regulated in the best way without having too much costs and still being able to do what I want to do? You mentioned Bitcoin uh, when your journey started in the blockchain space. What's your opinion nowadays about Bitcoin and Ethereum? Yeah, so when, when I started with my, with my yeah, looking into Bitcoin, and many people ask me now, did you start buying that Bitcoin? Are you rich now? And I say, no, I actually didn't because I was someone, or I'm still someone, was very careful with things I don't understand. At that time, I didn't understand if I buy Bitcoin, where is it lying? Who has the private key? I found Mount Gox. I said, who, who's Mount Gox? I mean, from whom am I buying now the cryptocurrency and who has access to my assets? So this is for me not clear and so I didn't do it at that time. If something like Trade Republic or N26 or Bitpanda or Coinbase would, ex would have existed uh, 10 years ago, I would be the first one who, who would have bought it because I saw the potential that Bitcoin at that time already, I knew exactly it's going through the roof, but I was afraid of getting it because I didn't know who has it. Yeah? Um, and now, I mean, at that time, I was not really sure, if, is it a payment instrument or is it an investment asset? I would now describe it as digital gold and, uh, and people who do not understand it, and, and I had many of those people, uh, people who even wanted me to work in their company and ask me always the question, uh, what is Bitcoin and why are you interested in Bitcoin? Uh, and some people who will ask the question because they have already the answer and they want to convince you to, to show you that uh, Bitcoin is a tulip or is a bubble. Uh, and I tell them always, for me, Bitcoin is digital gold. Do you understand why people pay for uh, gold so much? Because you cannot really use it. It doesn't have a usage. Uh, you can have a nice uh, 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 necklace or ring from some other material, which does not cost that much. But why people pay that much for, for gold? And the, and the answer is because people want to pay that much. So you have someone who wants to pay that much, who sees some value in it and is paying that much for it. And, and, and this, is, this would be like my, my answer to that. Uh, I mean, it's, it's definitely not the, the Bitcoin is not something you do which you can say it fixes all the evil in the world and helps to make El Salvador or the new uh, United States but it is helpful for those who need it to use it for something maybe as a payment instrument maybe as an investment asset maybe as just a means of transportation of information um, and in the end of the day it is it is as useful as the as the one who's getting it needs it mm. and sorry Ethereum, yeah. So <laughs> if you talk to, to those, I mean, I, I've been on some Bitcoin events, like really Bitcoin events, where you talk to some people who say only Bitcoin, everything shitcoin. And this is something which I would say, I understand those people, but I would not agree to them. Ethereum is something totally different. Ethereum is something more from a technological aspect. If you look at the smart contracts and if you look what you can do with it, it is very interesting. It's very interesting. And now when you look at NFTs and I'm not like a tech guy, but I have some solid understanding. And then if I see what you can do with an ERC-721 or from ERC-1155 and compare that to an ERC-20, it's really mind-blowing to see what you can do with that. And it really, what, what people don't understand when they look at crypto, they always try to put it in, an, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a category of how to make money with it. But if you look at it really from a technological perspective at Ethereum, 
what you can really do with that, what you can develop with that, it's very interesting. And for me, it's two different things. Bitcoin is very, very, I would say it's very easy to understand from a technological perspective. And the usage is, is I think, at least nowadays, very simple. But Ethereum, there's so much more behind it. There's so much things which we maybe don't all know so far and therefore very interesting. Um, but I wouldn't see really Ethereum as an investment asset. I would really see it as a tool uh, to, to open up the entire DLT square and to do a lot of it. If we speak about Ethereum, we have to speak about DeFi and you already mentioned NFTs and the metaverse. So what's your personal opinion about those? And Maybe a second question, how would you regulate DeFi, decentralized finance? Yeah, so I actually have some major people from the DeFi sector with whom I work for some time already, and I would not regulate DeFi because DeFi is something which is now developing. You need only to regulate something where you have intermediaries from whom you are dependent or on whom you are dependent. Like the examples of FTX of Silicon Valley Bank show it very nicely. These were all failures of intermediaries. If you do not have an intermediary, if you have a really a purely decentralized environment, you do not need to regulate it. Let it develop, let it become what it is uh, and let the people do whatever they want to do. As long as you do not have anyone who's doing crime. But if you have someone who's doing crime, you have, you have criminal law and criminal law covers that. You have civil law. And this also covers it. You do not need to regulate it because regulation comes from the state where you say you need to take someone and you need to control this person. But if you do not have intermediaries, if you have people like you and me interacting together, this is the, uh, this is a private autonomy. This is something where you, where the state should not interfere. Uh, so this is a little bit from my personal background when I was doing like humanitarian law and European law and stuff like that. And that would, I would say this is not necessary to, to regulate that. Um, and also from a from a um, innovation innovation perspective, uh, when we look, I mean, the, the, the DAOs they are something by itself. And when we talk about DAOs, we not necessarily talk about DeFi. But when we really talk about DeFi with decentralized finance, there are so many DeFi products which are very interesting, uh, where you can really see with protocols how, what you can do, what you in a traditional world you cannot do. So protocols are really replacing intermediaries and do it much better. So if you would have done, um, yeah, put your assets uh, in a DeFi rather than putting it with the Silicon Valley Bank, uh, it would be more safe, yeah, and more safe and more transparent. The same with FTX, yeah, and uh, therefore for me DeFi is, is something very interesting. We need to let it be developed, and uh, we need we do not need to regulate DeFi if it's really on a pure decentralized structure um, and uh, at least not now. Maybe in five years we should look at it again, but now we should not touch DeFi. Mm -hmm. um, so now we have spoken about DeFi, you already mentioned NFTs, um, Metaverse. What would you say about yeah. the Metaverse? Uh, Metaverse is very interesting and um, because I started very early with crypto, I do not like this bullshit bingo. So people who did ICOs at that time and did an ICO because the term ICO was nice, or people who did in the last 18 or 24 months NFTs because they wanted to use NFT as a term and to make money with that. And I'm saying the same about Metaverse. Metaverse is not something which is right now developing. You do not need the Metaverse in the central land and stuff like that to look at Metaverse past. If you look at the gaming industry, you can see that Metaverse we already have for a long time. Yeah, Counter-Strike, for example, is a metaverse which exists for a long time and there's a lot happening there. Roblox is a 
very nice metaverse, which we have, which works very nicely. You do not need to build up the central land and all that. Look at Roblox, look at Counter-Strike. This is already working and this is metaverse. Um, and for me, metaverse is very interesting. I'm actually right now writing a, a chapter on a handbook on the regulation and uh, legal stuff with the metaverse. And I will write a little bit about what metaverse is and how you would maybe need to regulate it. Um, and uh, metaverse is very interesting and I'm, I'm happy that people are now looking at metaverse more. Uh, and I hope that the metaverse is going to be used more effectively for the society. Uh, but I also hope that people are not trying to make quick money with metaverse because otherwise you're going to end up with, with some NFTs and some ICOs which didn't really work out because people just wanted to make money with it. Um, let's come back to your more personal life. What was the biggest obstacle and maybe at the same time the greatest success? Biggest obstacle, definitely the written exams in my law studies because they were really difficult. They were really difficult and people were panicking. I had people like throwing up, people who really got a burnout, couldn't do anything anymore. Really bright students who really ended up ter terribly, especially because we have two written exams. We have the written exams after the studies and the written the second written exams after you do the internships for two years. And the, the, the percentage of people who fail is very high. It's above 50%. And those who pass, uh, they pass with the minimum grade. And the minimum grade, at that time at least, you could not really get a proper job. So there was lots of pressure. And um, as I told you, I was not always the one who's studying a lot. And I was, didn't do it in law neither. I was only doing it to pass like with the minimum grade. But the minimum credit, I knew exactly it will not put me further in my career. So I had really pressure. I knew exactly that I needed to, 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 to nail the exams to be able to, to find a job. Yeah? So there was really pressure. So I was like, I was studying for quite long because I went to England. I was working a lot. So I knew exactly it's a one shot. If you fail it, your entire eight life or nine life, which you studied, it's gone. So <laughs> there was lots of pressure. And, uh, and uh, it was like, I think, Six, six exams in the first exam, eight exams in the second uh, exam after two years. And my very first exam I wrote, the very first exam uh, on the first day, uh, I, didn't, I didn't perform good. It was very bad. I, I know afterwards the, the grade was also not good. And I was very close to, to, to not go to the second exam on the second day. So the second exam was on the second, second day. And my girlfriend at that time, who is my wife now, she was coming to me and said, you have to go to the second exam. What's wrong with you? What are you doing here? And it was like, 10 or 15 minutes before the exam started. Uh, I was lucky because my, uh, my uh, flat was next to the court and in the court we were writing the exam. So I had like five minutes walk and I was lying still in bed. <laughs> and I, I, I told to my girlfriend that time I was panicked. I said, I'm not going. I, 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 I messed up the first exam. I knew it from the beginning. I never should have studied law. It was all bad. I, I'm not going to do that. And then she was saying, come on, stand up, go there. Are you idiots? You were like study for eight years. If you not go now, you're going to fail automatically. And if you don't try it, then uh, uh, you will, you will never know. Um, and it was like, it was a decision in 30 seconds to say, you stand up and go now, or you're not doing it. And I said, okay, let's go, <laughs> let's go. And uh, either it becomes worse and you fail, or you really like uh, uh, put your, uh, put yourself together and try it. Uh, and yeah, and I did that and um, you can see it like in the grade from the grade of the exams, it really went up. So the first one was like three points, which, you, which means you failed because you need four to, to, to do it. And it went from three up till 14 and 14 is like one of the best. So I wrote actually the, the best exams in criminal law uh, in, in the entire, not just university, but the entire state of Hessen. 
And uh, so um, and it showed me that it was the right decision to do it. So I passed that. And after that, every time when I have some complicated things where I think you're not going to do it, you're not going to, you're not going to succeed. It's impossible. Uh, I think always back to that day and say, okay, this was like the worst time of my life, but also at the same time, the best choice I did and I did the right choice. And I say, okay, it can't be worse than this. <laughs> so just do it. I mean, sometimes when I, in the beginning, when I did some conferences and some speaking stuff and I saw an audience of like 5,000 people and I was thinking, lots of people, I really want to go there and talk to them and some people really get nervous and have some paper in front of them. And I think back of that day when I was lying in bed, I said, no, it can't be worse than this. Just imagine the audience is naked and go there and do it. <laughs> They're all like you and it's all going to work out in the end of the day because it's the same football because I was used also to play football. They all just uh, cook with water. Therefore, they're all just humans. So just do it and it works out in the end. And with this, it worked out for me. It's a super interesting story. And um, I think it's super lining up with the next question. Uh, what would be an advice for a younger self, maybe at an age of 16, 17? So advice to, to anyone is to think what you want to do in your life. Me, for example, I'm a family person. I really like to work a lot. But at the same time, for me, when I'm thinking of what happens when I'm not here anymore, when I'm passed away, what do I want to leave as a footprint? And for me, the answer is very easy. You can only leave your, your, your kids and your people behind you and try to give them the best role model and to be like the best uh, person to them. And this is for me something. Others may say, I don't want to get married. I don't want to have kids. Fair enough. Always think what you want to do. Uh, the same with work. Don't do what others tell you. Always think what you what you want to do, the same once you are in work. So when I started to do law, I could have done something totally different, but I didn't want to do it. I, when I chose not to be with John Stay and with the big law firms, I said, for me, it's not important to, lot of, to earn lots of money. It's important to do something which I really like. So to, to say it in, in easy words, for those who are maybe 16 years old, maybe for those who are 30 years old, if you go on a Friday to the weekend, um, and you feel like relieved because you, you're, you're away from the, from the Monday to Friday uh, thing and you have now the weekend. And Mondays you wake up with stomach pain, belly aches, and you do not like to do it, then you do something wrong in your life. So then you should definitely think about it, what you want to do, and just go for that. And then if you feel good with that, go all the way and do it really nicely. And, and this would be my advice. Yeah? Completely agree. I always would say if you if you wish that the time goes faster, you're doing something wrong. If exactly. You, if you wish for time is going slower, then you're at the right place. Exactly. Um, now we're at the, let's say beginning of 2023. Um, what's your outlook for that year? Maybe you start with the crypto outlook and then with your personal. Yeah. So um, the, the outlook, um, some would maybe say I'm, I'm crazy, but I'm, I'm, I'm rather an optimistic guy. And I would say, in a nutshell, the outlook is good. The 2023 is going to be good. And I'm also going to give you some reasons for that. Um, as I'm in regulation and I look really closely into the regulation and I see how the environment and the industry develops with regulation, I can tell you that this year we had just recently the DLT pilot regime which came, which gives the opportunity to issue electronic securities and to trade them on a regulated market without booking to a CSD. Then we have the markets and crypto assets regulation, which is now coming out, which will give again some clarity on crypto assets for the entire um, yeah, uh, European economic area. 
Um, and looking at Germany at 2020, so when in 2020 Germany put up the law on crypto assets, everyone was saying this was a knockout for Germany because no one is going to do business in Germany. But it was the opposite. You had Coinbase, you had other international players who all came to Germany because they wanted to do business. And this is how the industry works in banking and finance. The, the, the professional players and the institutions, they need regulation to understand how to do it. And for me, the regulation in 2023, what we have now with DLT pilot regime in March and Mika in April is going to be positive push effect on the crypto market. Um, I'm not like someone who's looking into the Bitcoin, uh, but some say the halving is coming again and therefore Bitcoin is also going up. I would say the Bitcoin is going up because you have a lot of professional players like banks and funds who want to invest in Bitcoin and Ethereum. And as Bitcoin is only 21 million, so it's capped. It's, it's, it's logical, economic logical that the price will go up because the demand is going higher. Okay? And, uh, and therefore, I would say definitely the outlook for crypto in 2023 is good. Uh, the outlook for myself and in general, um, I can't really say it because we have, you know, we have the war. And as from my background, I told you I was uh, into international law, international law of conflict, international public law, international humanitarian law. I think it's a very um, critical yeah, atmosphere right now with, with, with the war and in Ukraine and Russia. And I hope that uh, the, the developments around China are not becoming worse because this is definitely having on my personal and family uh, yeah, an effect in the end of the day. Uh, but I mean, I hope that it's going to become good. But this is this is for me a little bit more critical, even though I'm very very optimistic people a person. Uh, but for me personally, I mean, I'm I'm happy with my family, with my kids, and it, it can only become better. I like to play on the weekend with my kids some some gaming, and this is definitely going to be happening. And hopefully, the weather is going to be nice, and uh, going to do some uh, outside activities also. And therefore, I think 2023 is going to be a good year. Mm. Final question, where can the people reach out to you and what's maybe the best way to do that? Yeah, so the best way would be actually just to go on LinkedIn because I'm quite active on LinkedIn. And uh, if you want to learn more about me, you want to connect, just connect, say hello. Uh, and if you're around in some conferences where I'm also just stop by, have a coffee, say hello. Uh, yeah, and that's the easiest way. It was a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thank you.